0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight comes from 1 Timothy 4, verses 11 to 16. Command and teach these things, let no one despise you for your youth Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, it is a lamp into our feet. Without it, we are left guessing and stumbling on a dark path. So we pray, God, that by your word, now, that you would illumine our way, that we would know the way to follow you in Christ, the way to follow you in joy. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you are a fourth through a sixth grader and would like to head out with Caleb Ward and talk about the text that we just heard read together with other fourth through sixth graders, you can do that. Well, at my home church as a kid, Denton Bible Church in the Dallas area, Like many youth ministries do, our middle school youth group at the end of the summer before we all graduated up to ninth grade would would, would hand over the keys to an entire Wednesday night youth service to the children. Uh, You know, like... The youth kids would all play, in the, play the play the music, which I'm sure was wonderful. Uh, eighth graders doing that. I'm, and the eighth graders would run the sound in the PowerPoint screens. The teaching even got handed over to an eighth grader. Uh, my youth pastor asked me to do that. Uh, he just said, anything you want to teach us uh, from the Bible would be great. Uh, and man, like the music, I'm sure that that was something. Uh, like many... 14-year-olds, I turned to one of my favorite passages, 1 Timothy four, eleven through 16. Fellow eighth graders, are you tired of being looked down upon by the mean old adults? Let no one despise you for your youth. Are you gifted in some ways? Do not neglect the gifts that you have. Stand up for yourself, doggone it. I think that was probably, I don't know if that's what I actually was teaching or the tone and tenor of what I taught that night. Uh, but I think that's why I chose the text that I wanted to teach that night. Perhaps it, the, the reasons weren't entirely like pubescent angst. Uh, But I'm sure that had something to do with it Even if my motives weren't entirely That angsty And I can't find a recording of that anywhere To see if the delivery was entirely Pubescent angst But uh, I wish that I did Have a recording of that Because if I did I would have just Been able to save myself hours of sermon prep this week I could have just preached the same sermon That I preached in 1998 Without changing a thing I'm sure That's certainly not true uh, while there are certain certainly implications and applications for us as 14-year-olds or as 8-year-olds in this text for us, certainly that's true. Young folks, pay certain attention tonight. Uh, there will be much for you here. Paul is writing these encouragements and commands to likely a mid-30s Timothy, not a, like 12-year-old Timothy, as we like to assume when he says youth or something. Uh, which is like my age now, not when I preached this in 1998. Nonetheless, this paragraph has always held a special place in my heart because it is the very first sermon I ever preached, if we want to call that a sermon. But what is the point of this paragraph? We we might be stumbling upon like a real reason that Paul sat down to write this letter in the first place. Yes, the purpose of this letter is that Timothy might know and understand how one is to behave within the family of God, how the family of God is meant to live and act together, but maybe Paul had been walking around some day, one day in Macedonia, and he's like praying for the Ephesian church, remembering his young protege, Timothy, he's praying for them, and he knows that the elders of the Ephesians. Ephesian church might not be receiving Timothy all that warmly like this happens like all the time anyway with churches right? A young pastor shows up in a church and this church has long history of relationships with one another and then this young buck just comes in and thinks that he gets to just like just capitalize and maybe not even have the history that this church has had together. Who does he think he is? Like we want to trust him, but we can't yet perhaps. But here in this case, in writes Timothy, this church hasn't like put together a search committee and actually offered him a job and hired him or something. This young guy, he's likely soft-spoken, a little timid. He's supposedly sent here by Paul and he's comes in and acting all this apostolic authority from the Apostle Paul. They don't even probably even want him there. Paul knows this, and so he wants to send this letter as an encouragement to Timothy. Yes, to tell him the specific ways in which he should confront some of these false teachers, and the ways in which he needs to put the family of God into more healthy order, but also to tell him not to be intimidated by his lack of experience either by his age or by his lack of like relational experience with these folks in Ephesus. Keep going, my young Padwan. Take courage. He didn't call him a Padwan. I, I think that's in a different universe. Anyway, persevere, my son. Don't let them bully you, essentially. So we'll see these six verses divided up into two major encouragements that Paul is going to give to Timothy here to command and teach these things and then secondly, to practice and immerse in these things. So first of all, let's read these first four verses together again as our first section, our first half of this section to command and teach these things. Command and teach these things, Paul says in verse 11. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is now the the second week in a row that Paul has started a new thought by first reiterating an old thought. Last week he told Timothy to put these things before the brothers, and this week to command and teach these things. We're not entirely sure what these things are that Paul is meaning, whether he's simply saying to, like we said last week, the the thought that he was conc- concluding, like command and teach these things that like bodily training is of some value, but training and godliness is of value in every way, or that he's more broadly meaning like everything I've said up until this point, all that I've talked to you and taught you about the family of God, command and teach these things. Either way, What he's just said acts as kind of like a spur in like the side of Timothy. Like giddy up, man. Get out there and command and teach these things with confidence. In chapter 1, Paul used the same word, this command word, to tell Timothy to get out there and command or charge false teachers to stop teaching a different doctrine. He's here using it, though, not in a negative sense like he used it in chapter 1, but in a positive sense. Like, get out there and command the good stuff, not just get out there and command and stop the bad stuff. The problem is the place that Timothy finds himself in. Even though Paul is trying to remake what the eldership of a local church should be, more about their character and less about their actual age, this community, partly made up by a lot of Jewish Christians, would have looked to their actual elders as the leaders of the community. That's not like in a bad thing, right? We should look to those who are older than us, with more life experience and wisdom, to be our leaders and our even community leaders. And Paul is saying, yeah man, that's just the cultural reality. That's true, that there will be older, experienced folks who will tend toward being the leaders of a community. But don't let that stop you from speaking and teaching what is right. And so he is to, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. As an eighth grader, I think I latched onto that first clause. Let, let no one despise you for your youth. I'd be like, yeah, that's right. I've got just as much access to the scriptures and ability to understand the scriptures as anyone. Yeah, and I, that's true. And I think our larger American culture agrees that this is a great life motto. Let no one despise you for your youth. There's a sense in which every generation, I think from like, the his, like throughout human history, wants to throw off the cultural norms of our parents' generation, and we want to assert ourselves as like the generation who is now in charge of things. And I can certainly empathize on some level, now that I'm like a generation older than the generation that I think that we would call like the youth of like teens and young to mid-twenties. I'm now one generation past that, which is weird. And today's teens and 20-somethings rightly look around at the world and see evil and see injustice, and they are vocal in their unhappy protests. And that's not just something that 20-somethings are doing. My millennial generation is also very loud and vocal. We like to yell as well. We haven't graduated from our desire to be taken seriously. And is like the generation who's now in charge of all things. I've now got two weeks of sermons here in a row of quoting... Wonderful Babylon Bee satire headlines, but Thursday had a great one. The nation's Generation Xers announced plan to just send, sit back and enjoy watching boomers and millennials tear each other to shreds. And that's pretty much true on social media today. My 30-something generation and my parents' 60-something generation just hate each other. And all you 40, 50-or-something Generation Xers just get to sit back and just watch us kill each other. Anyway... In reality, a well-adjusted society, a well-adjusted culture is cross-generationally growing. Those who are younger can look around and be discontent, can be disappointed by by the way that things are. And then wise younger folks can then bring the energy that is needed to help enact change older generations can certainly be part of the problems that younger generations are frustrated by but wise older folks can then bring wisdom and patience and experience to help clarify possible unintended consequences of perhaps well-intentioned plans here though it appears is what where most of the older folks in Ephesus were just like they were just outright failing This older generation, or at least those in leadership, the elders of these elder generation, are failing. They're they're teaching false doctrine. They're not leading the family of God well. In the coming weeks, we're going to see that it appears that there are just loads and loads of folks within this community, within this church, who are being neglected. And so Paul says, get out there, Timothy, with your youthful energy and do something about it. You don't have to pay your dues and wait your turn." You can be part of the change now. But I'm not telling you to just go in there and burn the whole thing down. Like the older generation is so hopelessly lost that you just got to nuke the thing and start over. Rather, set for the believers an example. An example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Every generation these days young or old, from all political parties, from all persuasions, is quick to let no one despise us for our age, whether that's old or young. Let no one despise me because I'm older or let no one despise me because I'm young. But then, kind of fill in the gap for that second half of verse 12. Not with, but set an example. But, let no one despise you because of your age, but then be overly defensive, be ungracious, and be vindictive. Always assume the worst in your opponents and make sure to attack any weakness that he or she shows. Hoard as much power as possible and do not give just even an inch because give, doing so will indicate weakness. But this is not the way of the gospel of Christ who did not consider a power, a thing to be held onto or hoarded, but he actually became weak to make his former opponents now his friends, and to make them strong within him. The one person in history who would have been right to be overly defensive, to be ungracious in the face of false accusation and violence, he responded in self-control and in silence and in love. So Timothy, Paul is saying, you belong to Christ. You are now united with him so closely that it ought to be Kind of difficult for us to see where he stops and you begin. You are united in him in your life. So the power of God through Christ is now shaping and forming you. So live more and more like him each day. Set for the believers an example the example of Christ in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. But whereas our larger culture could certainly stand to hear a message like this, Paul is specifically telling Timothy to set an example for whom? For like you now, this freshman uh, senator or representative in your house committee, like that's who you're supposed to set an example for? Are you supposed to set an example for all the people out there on Facebook or on social media or your political opponents? No, Paul is specifically here charging Timothy to set an example for the believers, for those who also share in the same resurrection power that he does. Those who are adopted in the same family of God and therefore are now your thicker-than-blood relatives, brothers and sisters. And if, like Christ, we Christians are now meant to live with others as primary over and against my needs— then any of us can live as an example for the rest of the community. You do not have to be a apostolic delegate like Timothy or even a pastor of a church to live as an example for the rest of the church, for the community. My self-control, if if the needs of others are more important and primary over mine, then my self-control is not primarily about me. My self-control is more about others. I'm not necessarily concerned about my conduct now because I have a fear of what other people might think. That's like a fear of man that is still self-centered. But I want others to grow in maturity and holiness in Christ so badly that I will consider my daily motivations, my conduct, that they might follow me as I follow Christ. I'm now other-centered, Christ-centered, So I don't care how old you are or where you might be, don't wait until you're out of high school or until you have a full-time job or until you get married or have kids or when you get to some milestone or threshold in your life which now you think you ought to be taking these things seriously to set an example for the community. Start now. How might you today, no matter your age, your, your gender, your stage of life, begin to more and more, out of love for others... Say, follow me as I follow Christ in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. You're frustrated, perhaps, by an, a different generation's flippancy about uh, certain language or certain words. Well, set an example with every word you say, considering whether each word is honoring to the Lord. You're frustrated by a generation's actions, their conduct, their use of politics or social media or their pursuit of money or of just stuff. will set an example for others in your conduct. You teens or 20-somethings don't just immediately, once you get here on Sunday nights, flock to each other. You're like, man, the older people here are just so inhospitable and ungracious. They don't, they don't talk to me. Well, do you talk to them? Go introduce yourself to them. Be an example in warmth and hospitality. Introduce yourself to their kids. You're frustrated by what you perceive as a different generation's lack of love? Set an example in your love. I feel like all of us, every generation, every, every human generally says, I, I just want to love people, right? Most people have that as an ideal, that they desire to love people, but then when it gets to actual individual people, that becomes very difficult, And sometimes, no matter the generation, we might say, I just want to love people like Jesus loves people, but uh, not those people. Well, set an example for the rest of us. You're frustrated by another generation's faith that you seem to seem as like a vestige of just American patriotism? Well, show us what it means to have a life and mind and heart and soul transformed by the holiness and the glory of God, to love your neighbor as yourself. You're frustrated, perhaps, by another generation's misogynistic and abusive understanding of sexuality. Well, set an example in purity. You teenagers, show us 30 or 40-somethings that pornography should not be every man's or every woman's battle. You 20-something dating couples, set an example for my kids in what it looks like to date well in honor and in purity. I want to tell my kids, hey, Watch them. Date like them. That's the way you do it. It's one thing for me to say these things to you, but here's some 23-year-old couple who is dating with purity, who is dating well. They're setting an example for you. Watch them. Timothy isn't to just go in here into Ephesus and just start telling people how to act right. Get your stuff together, Ephesians. That's not what he is meant to do. No, instead the old quote here is perhaps helpfully true that if you wish to build a ship do not divide the men into teams and send them to the forest to cut wood. Instead, teach them to long for the vast and endless sea. If they have a longing for the vast and endless sea they'll just go start building ships. You don't have to teach them how to do that. By his very life, Timothy is to teach the Ephesian Christians to long for the vast and endless sea of God's glory and of his holiness. Not without words though. He is to set an example, not without words. Paul has already told Timothy to say plenty. And like we talked about two weeks ago in the membership class, if you've been in the membership class with us, the phrase, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words, is very much like saying, feed the hungry always, and if necessary, use food. Like, the gospel is one of truth, and is one of words, and is one of calls to repentance. If our understanding of the gospel is merely, though, to live a life of good conduct, and there is no proclamation of the finished work of Christ that accompanies this life, then the gospel that we are sharing and modeling is merely just a life of living an ethically upstanding life, just of doing good deeds, of just godly conduct. There is no salvation in that message because there is no such thing as a fully ethically upstanding life. There is no such thing as a fully holy and godly conducted life. None of us lives that perfectly. Rather, Timothy is to set an example, but then he is also to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Not just without words of setting an example, but to teach. Timothy is to be a preacher. He is to follow the tradition that had been developing in weekly synagogue worship and Jewish life for a couple of centuries, that when the people of God got together, they got together to listen to the scriptures read. People didn't just carry around a Bible, either they had eight or nine personal copies in their houses or one on their phones. They didn't have this accessible to them, so they needed it to be, to be read to them, that they might hear God's word, and then to have an elder explain or teach the scripture that they just heard. The roots of this practice go back to the Old Testament, where in the book of Nehemiah we read that the men and women stood from morning to midday as Ezra, the priest, read and explained the law. This is why, the reason why we stand to hear and read the scriptures. You guys know that? This comes from the book of Nehemiah. And it's usually just for a minute or two or three, not from morning to midday, so no complaining. But Jesus did the same thing in Luke 4, when he entered into the synagogue, and as Luke tells us, as was his custom, Jesus gets up and he reads from Isaiah 61, he reads the scripture, and then he explains the meaning of the scripture. Jesus read and then taught, he preached. The tradition then continued on into Christian churches that were now including, not only the Old Testament readings and explanations but now reading from and teaching from the gospel traditions and even reading from the letters of the apostles that were circulating and to be read aloud this is what Christians do when they gather they hear the word read and then they hear the word taught I understand what I'm about to say is pretty audacious but listen to the words of Martin Luther here Luther says yes I hear the sermon but who is speaking? The minister? No Indeed, you do not hear the minister. True, the voice is his, but my God is speaking the word which he preaches or speaks. And I realize that what I just said is like a kind of, like, it's, it's like self, I don't know, promoting. Like I just gave myself a, just a whole host of authority. I just gave myself the authority of God. But that's not necessarily what's going on. This is a sobering reality for a preacher that he does speak when he speaks God's word. But does this mean that all preaching is authoritative? That any time some person stands behind, I don't know, some little stand like this with a Bible open that they are speaking authoritatively for God? Unfortunately, no. When a preacher isn't preaching what the text means, he's not preaching. He's just talking. He's giving his opinions about the Bible. That's why one of the biggest chunks of time that Clint and I will devote in our week when we are preaching is to study and prepare to understand what this text is saying. A sermon is not a weekly TED talk with some interesting observations about culture and the Bible. When the preacher is exposing the text so that the main point and emphasis of the text becomes the main point and emphasis of the sermon, then he, he is speaking for God. But preaching is not a one-sided endeavor, endeavor like, like a TED talk. there's like some applause before and then they're speaking and then there's some applause after and then we all just disperse and maybe never remember what we heard. The congregation in preaching is involved, is involved in some hard work of listening but also testing against the scriptures to make sure that what I am saying is actually God's word as well as then digesting both now as you're hearing but then as we leave of applying both in our own hearts and minds and our car rides homes, and home and over dinner and then throughout the week in our GC and uh, as we consider and reread what we've heard, the responsibility of the sermon doesn't just lie on the preacher's shoulders. I'm a member of this church, same as you all. So there's a very real sense in which I am right now speaking not just to you, but for you. You have kind of like said as, as this church, get up there and teach us. Get up there and speak for us. We will hold your doctrine accountable, yes, but speak for us. And if that's the case, hey, everyone, I want to hereby invite you to, when you hear me, say something that you find yourself agreeing with, say, yeah, that's right, or amen. I would like you to affirm me in that way. This doesn't have to just be a cultural thing. All amen means is I agree. So amen? Amen. Feel free. You can now, I have now given you full license to respond well, vocally even, uh, as you hear something that you find yourself resonating with. Yes, he is speaking what I feel. He is exposing the Bible in a way that I understand and agree with. And that's all expositional preaching means. When, when, the, when the congregation stands to its feet, out of reverence for God's word, and it listens intently, and it waits in expectation. This is what the the congregation is waiting for, for the meaning of this text to be exposed, to be uncovered. We, We pray and sing for illumination, that the spirit might give light, and that the meaning might be exposed. This is expositional preaching, that we might hear and learn, hear from God. Yes! Keep it going! So this is what, the Tim, what Timothy is meant to do. He's, he's to do with the Ephesians. Paul knew what they needed was a lamp for their feet. They needed bread for their spiritual bellies, not just 10 steps for a successful marriage or seven tips for financial freedom. We need the Bible. Amen? Amen? We I mean, need the Bible. And so following in Timothy's example, I will devote myself to the public reading of the scripture, to exhortation, and to, the, to teaching. And you all devote yourself to demanding nothing less. If I or Clint or any other preacher gets up here and just starts talking, and he's not telling us what the meaning of the Bible is saying, then kick us out. Say, get out, preach the Bible, man. And hopefully we will start preaching the Bible at your All right, now back to the Bible. Paul is maybe anticipating that Timothy might still be doubting himself because of his age. Maybe wondering, man, I'm I'm young and really, like, do I really have what it takes? Will they take me seriously? If I get out there and, like, tell them, try to even correct them, like, how's that going to go? I'm a little unsure. So Paul tells Timothy in verse 14, He reminds him of the past. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. This is the same event that Paul also mentions in his second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1, of a particular and of a specific moment of gifting that Timothy experienced in his past. Based on the rest of Timothy, this gift that was given to him is almost certainly the gift of teaching or of preaching. Left to himself, Timothy does not have what it takes. He is perhaps a timid guy who cares a lot about what other people might think of him. And Paul here is saying, remember. Remember what happened. Remember the words that were spoken over you. Also remember when we all laid our hands on you. We all saw it in you when the Holy Spirit moved in power that day. So stop second guessing your ability. Stop second guessing God's intentions for your ministry there in Ephesus. We know it to be true. Remember. We don't all have the same gift of preaching or teaching, nor should we necessarily expect to have this particular and indelible moment that we are to remember when people lay their hands on us and we feel the spirit move in power by prophecy or by laying on of hands. Nevertheless, the ways in which God has particularly gifted individual Christians are to be used for the building up of the church. Timothy is not just to roll into Ephesus to make a name for himself, to increase his reputation, but to build the church. So the ways in which God has gifted us, these are, ways, these are things that are not to be ignored. These gifts are not to be sat on or buried in the dirt. God gifts individual Christians in many, many different kinds of ways for the building up of the church, but not for ourselves. So this is a good question, for, perhaps for us to be leaving here and thinking through throughout the rest of the week. How has God gifted me? How can I serve this church for the first time in this way, or perhaps more in this way? How can I perhaps give of myself more and more? How can I set an example for the church, but also to serve her with the ways in which God has gifted me? You are not qualified. You are not qualified. But God has qualified you in Christ. And he has gifted you in the Spirit. So serve Set an example and serve. Command and teach these things, Timothy. And if he is to teach these things, the fullness of the gospel and all of its implications, he is now, and more briefly here, to practice and immerse in these things. In verse 15 he says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul's command here to Timothy echoes the same athletic themes that we saw from last week. He is to practice. He is to immerse. He is to grow. He is to grow as a better preacher. He is to grow by devoting himself to God's word, by committing to setting an example for the church, by disciplining himself in godliness by living a life not of removing himself from the world and setting up new moral laws for God's approval like we saw at the very beginning of chapter four, but by living into the fullness and freedom of Christ that he has won for Timothy on the cross. And the Ephesian church will see his progress. They will watch and they'll observe and they'll see and they'll follow him. I've read lots of different books with my older two kids Uh, Now I'm beginning to recycle some of those same books that we've read now with all four. We've read the Chronicles of Narnia, and now we're going back for a second go-around with the the four and the six-year-olds. We just finished the first one. And by the first one, I mean the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the proper first one, by the way. Amen! Amen! Yes. I have strong opinions on this. Uh, but I, I am really, really looking forward. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have, I'm really looking forward to getting to the Voyage of the Dawn Treader where our snotty Eustace becomes a dragon. If you've never read this book, you you got to read it. Eustace becomes a dragon. And in the end, Aslan pains him. He hurts him. But by doing so, he brings the cure. He brings transformation. At the end of this book, Lewis writes this. He says, It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from, the, from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Those who were with Eustace, we might say... Were able to see his progress, to see his growth by the end of the next book. Hello, book four. Eric, help me out. This silver chair. This silver chair. Eustace is a different kid, and by sure, by the end of the last battle, his progress was being made known, was evident to everyone. And while this text is a text to encourage preachers, these are the verses that uh, the Simeon Trust Biblical Workshop that or preaching workshop that Clint and I go to every October. These are like the verses for this preaching workshop. Just make progress every year. Make progress in your preaching. Nevertheless, this has implications for us all, flowing out of last week's text about disciplining ourselves, about training for godliness. Have you ever thought about how your discipline, your church attendance, your Bible reading, your prayer is meant for others, is a way to love your neighbor in showing progress, but in actually loving your neighbor. When I am regularly reading the Bible in the mornings or am I, I am committing myself to prayer, I am less self-oriented and I am more God-oriented. So I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to read. I'm going to make sure to get in the car on Sunday afternoon to be here with you all. Not necessarily and merely because I like the way it makes me feel. Like it's a personal quest of godliness or of self-actualization. But because I know that it will help me love others. By practicing and immersing myself in these things, I am ongoingly confronted with the ways in which I need correction. In which I need growth both in my life and in my doctrine. And by keeping close watch on his life and his doctrine, Timothy will save himself and his hearers. Like the close of last week with another tricky verse, we know that Paul is certainly not saying at the end of verse 16 that if Timothy lives right and if he believes right, he will save himself. And if he lives right and believes right, other people will be saved by him or something. Like his conduct and his belief will save them. What Paul is saying is that he is by a life of reflection, by a life of introspection and of ongoing trust in the Lord Jesus, by keeping watch on his life and doctrine, Timothy will persevere. He will make it to the end. By this kind of life, he will model and exhibit the kind of life, the kind of transformed life that bears the aroma of Christ. That shows that the cure has begun in your life, that is evident to all that progress is being made, the kind of life that will pull and attract others into the same kind of saving knowledge and love of Christ that Timothy has. So while Paul has Timothy in mind, perhaps Paul even has future pastors in mind, as he writes at the end of this chapter 4, this has deep and incisive meaning for us all. While we do reject, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words, we must use words to speak about who Jesus is and what he has done. On the other hand, a so-called faith in the gospel of Christ that is not verified by a life of growing and increasing godly speech and conduct and faith and love and purity is just no gospel at all. The world around us needs to hear our words of the gospel, but then needs to see our lives of the gospel. In other words, Martin Luther is right when he says, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. What is the kind of gospel that you are preaching if there is no life of love coming behind it? Your neighbor needs to observe, to see progress, to see, yeah, I actually want that too, rather than just, uh, yeah. I can basically choose to live my life however I'd want and then I have to go to church once a week on Sunday? I don't want that. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful for these words of life that you have given to us through your servant Paul. Help us as your people to continue to abide in Jesus, to remain in him, to live in him, to fix ourselves onto him, the vine of life, and you have promised that you will abide in us as well. Continue, Father, to form the life of Christ within us for our own increasing joy in him, but also that the world might see our lives of love and of joy and of peace that you are actually creating and that you are forming Show us the areas of our own lives in our conduct in our doctrine and our lives that need refining. Make us humble. Make us receptive. Give us more and more of your grace, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ's church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.